Good morning. I love just hanging, listening, standing here listening to everyone sing this morning. I'm sure we're going to sound better than New Heavens and New Earth, but it still sounded really good. Um, so part of the time I was just sitting there listening uh, to you all, and, and uh, it sounded like what I heard were full hearts, and that's what we want. So um, if you would turn to, to James chapter 2, we're starting the second chapter of James this morning. Um, I don't think it's going to take us 10 sermons to get through this chapter like it did the, the first chapter. Um, Lord willing, that's my goal anyway, but uh, as we start out the passage, we're going to look at first seven verses, possibly eight if we get time to probably just reference it and then come back to it next week, but um, the passage begins, chapter two begins with, my brothers show no partiality, and so it's, it's probably a familiar passage to us. To, to make his point, as he says, show no partiality, to make his point, um, James uses a situation that's either happened or is likely sort of ongoing. Uh, within the church or something close to it. Um, and it's this, a rich man and a poor man walk into a church. It kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? A rich man and a poor man walk into a church. But based on only that, the question is, how do you treat um, these two men? In James' scenario, the rich man is given the good seat, and while the poor man is told to you know, stand aside or to you know, sit on the floor, uh, this, James says, is, is sin. For no other reason than this man is, that's all the information we're given, for no other reason that this man is rich, good seat. And for no other reason that the man is poor, you know, he doesn't. I think we know this kind of stuff. So if we remember back to, to childhood, um, some of us can probably remember that, that far. Um, but remember school, remember the group that we called the cool kids? And how other kids, maybe us, probably us, were willing to do anything to become a part of that group? Um, or if we were in that group, do anything, you know, to stay in that group. Um, cool kids were the social elite of our limited environment back then. And so that, that's probably something that we can draw from to sort of, you know, kind of understand a sh shallow understanding of what's, what's going on here. Um, and if not, then there's probably something from your life, work life, or, or whatever that y you can um, draw on that to understand sort of what's, what's going on in this scenario. Um, um, and James says this is sin. Uh, and, and, and again, that's a very surfacey example of what we're dealing with today. But you know, before we get into the text itself, I want to point out a couple of things. First, the rich and the poor are not just two groups of people of many different groups that, that he could have you know, drawn from. No, these are the only two groups. That's all there was. There was no middle class. And so if you remember from our study of, of Micah, the rich often abused the poor, very often abused the poor. They had all the power. So the scenario that he lays before us is not only possible, it's likely, it's probable, it's what was going on um, here. There were only rich, there were only poor. So treating the rich as a poor person, treating the rich with preferential treatment was a way for you to possibly alleviate the state, the the, the depth of your plight, at least, sidling up to the rich could, could help you. So we may not identify with being the type of poor man uh, that James has in mind here, but the point that the poor man is giving the rich man favoritism or preference or partiality to get something in return, I think we can probably identify with that. Uh, we may not identify economically, 
But I think we know what it's like to maybe offer someone or treat someone that we think we can get something from, so we treat them in a certain way. Or we may know what it's like to be on the other side of that, to sort of be stepped over um, because of who we are. So, so that's first. Secondly, don't underestimate the importance of this passage. Uh, we might, you know, think that we're getting a bit of a reprieve here from the thumping that we've gotten in chapter 1. And that's all it's been, really. James has just been hammering us over and over again with various things. And so we all walk away, like, you know, just feeling beat up a bit. Uh, bridle the tongue. Our words reveal something you know, serious about our hearts. And um, we're starting out, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. How we go through trials and how we, how we live in the midst of our trials reveals what we take our joy in. Um, um, what else? Sin comes from... You know, the heart, it doesn't come from outside of us. It, temptation comes from the heart. And so that's, you know, difficult for us to sort of um, apply to our lives. They're not difficult, but hard. Um, and so as we look at this passage, we might think, well, it's, you know, I, I know I do that sometimes, but, but who does it really hurt? What does it really matter, you know, where somebody sits? What does it really matter who I invite into my home? But, but look down at verse 4. When you show partiality towards someone... You become a, a judge with evil thoughts. And so obviously evil is not a harmless word. The person who is treated evilly does not walk away from us unharmed. James is saying that, that partiality, showing favoritism to others based upon exterior circumstances or appearances, it's wicked. If you look down at the verse 6, he compares them to, to maybe the pinnacle of what they would see as wicked or evil or oppressive, and that is the judges. He compares that if you have impartial, if you show partiality, you're like evil judges that drag you off into to jail. And so this isn't something to gloss over until, you know, James gets serious again. He, he's serious here. And so as I said, we're going to take this in, in two weeks. We're going to do one verses, one through verses, you know, nine, maybe eight, maybe seven, and then whatever's left through verse 13 we'll, we'll look at next week. But my prayer is that we'll all take this as seriously as James does for our good, for the good of our community here at Living Faith Baptist, and certainly for the glory um, of God. Partiality and not showing or showing partiality has implications upon how we view Christ, how we view others, um, how we think about treasures of heaven versus treasures on earth, or how we think about evangelism itself, how we think about the plight of others. So whether we're the cool kid who's being treated better than we deserve, or you're the one who wants to be the cool kid and so treats someone better than they deserve, or you're the kid that's being stepped over, <laughs> there's something for all of us within, within this passage. If you're the rich man or the cool kid, you're nothing compared to Christ and shouldn't be being treated the way you are. If you're the poor man who treats the rich or the cool kid favorably to get something from them, you've, you have a diminished view of what you need, you have a diminished view of Christ. And if you're the one who gets told to sit on the floor or to, to step aside, James would have us to know, Scripture would have us to know that Christ is truly enough to satisfy you. So, let's start. Show no partiality. This is a command. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So again, this is a command that we're to obey. So what is partiality? Well, literally, you know, I read that commentators, some commentators, you know better than I do, but they say this is sort of a made-up word by Christians, but it means, or at least applied this way, uh, 
but it means receive the face, literally. Receive the face. And so it means to make decisions about how we treat people in this context based solely on their outward appearances. So let me look at your face. Um, that's what the world does, right? The, the, uh, the, uh, they treat people based upon what people look like or what their outward circumstances are and what others can do for them based upon what they look like. Um, so let me point out the obvious. Look at the first two words. My brothers. James isn't speaking to the world. James is speaking to the church. Remember the word world from last week? The, the pure religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. We said that the world, the definition for the world, it's a system of thought and values and priorities that oppose God, oppose God's rule, and oppose Christ. Uh, the world does show partiality. We see this happening all over the place today. Always have, but abortion is a prime example of partiality, deeming children unworthy of life because of how they'll diminish or you know, impact the life of the mother or the life of the mother and the father maybe wants for themselves. Slavery is an, obviously, an obvious example. Holocaust, another example. It's not a new problem. Uh, these are all examples of partiality. And so showing preference to someone in a way that shows, dis shows disdain for another, that's, that's wicked. It's to covet something from someone, and so you have no use for the one that you're stepping over or not showing preference to. One, one way this is coming to the forefront today is that there's an entire framework of thought. This is what we're being taught in our world, in our schools. This is how you should think about, about the world, and it's based upon partiality, one that determines how people get treated by culture and government and really everyone else by no other measurement than outward appearances. It's called intersectionality. The outward markers determine um, how oppressed you are societally, regardless if you've been actually oppressed or not. And so today the cool kids are the most oppressed, and you better treat them favorably or the world will label you a, a sinner according to their own law or anthropology. For instance, a black gay woman has more oppression marks than a Hispanic gay man who has more oppression marks than a white gay woman who has more oppression marks than a white gay man who has more oppression marks than a white straight woman who has more oppression marks than a white... You get where I'm going with all of this, but at the bottom of the list are Christians. And so the world in this system has deemed us to be the biggest oppressor and so um, should be oppressed. And so actual oppression, I do know that there is oppression in the world today. Clearly, I do. I know that. I'm not denying that. But actual oppression in this model doesn't matter. It's what categories you fit into determined by this model. That's an example of how the world shows partiality. That's not who James is talking to. He's talking to, to the church who know better than to be so egregious with how we view people and oppression, and plight, and even riches. But again, the church still does it. We still do it. We can and still receive the face. How? Well, I think we can probably all think of examples. Churches are slow to put a rich man maybe under church discipline. What if he leaves? We, we need his tithe. Elder, elders and deacons are sometimes given to men who outside of qualifications, just might seem more influential than others. 
Think about how many celebrities who make professions of faith are immediately pushed, immediately pushed to the to the to the to the limelight. I'm back in the day, I don't know if anyone remembers the the rapper Mace. Remember, remember the rapper Mace? Anyone remember that? Um, he professed faith. I just kind of remember dim details about this, but he professed faith and started a church immediately in Atlanta. I think it was in Atlanta. Like first Sunday, thousands of people were there. <laughs> it's crazy. But more recently. Remember how the church went crazy over Kanye West? <laughs> we, we can do it by deciding where to ch- plant churches. Well, you know, rich neighborhoods need Jesus too, but is that our only consideration for why they, they plant, people plant churches in, in rich neighborhoods? So we can think like the world does. And so if we you know, sort of pare it down to us or narrow it down to us, who are you most likely to invite into your home? Who are you most likely to call, you know, maybe out for their sin? I think we can all admit that there are times and settings that we receive face. We show favoritism. And again, going back to what James is saying, it's evil. In a minute, we're going to go through all the reasons of why this is evil. But, but just thinking of ourselves now, you don't have to answer out loud, but we do that, right? Right? I mean, you do that. There are instances in your life and where you show favoritism to others, preferential treatment based solely on maybe what you're comfortable with or based solely on what you might receive from them. And so we do it. I do it. I've looked at myself this week, and there are ways in which I show favoritism. And again, it's evil thoughts. But look how James speaks to them again, my brothers. And so obviously he's going to get serious with this, but he's speaking to them in love. And so it's truth in love, right? So James is talking to Christians who should know better but can think and act like the world when it comes to this. So it's not a shocker if we're showing favoritism in some way. But that's not an excuse, but it's evil. But if we are brothers, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are Christians, if we are believers who do commit this sin, then there is forgiveness for us. And so we can confess and we can be forgiven of this. And by grace, through faith, we can put this sin to death. And so that's the goal for us today. So, show no partiality. Again, it's not that easy to really understand what this means, or how it works itself out in every case. So, and I have in my outline there, it doesn't apply to every situation. Um, you know, if you're sitting on a bus and two people get on, you have a 20-year-old, you're on a bus and there's no seats. Two people get on, a 20-year-old man and an 80-year-old woman, and you offer your seat to an 80-year-old woman. Is that showing sinful partiality? No, right? If you're standing in the line at the airport, both you and, a, and another man who's wearing a military you know, uniform, they go forward and you want to change your flights, you both do. The, the ticket lady says it's going to cost you $50, but then looks to the soldier and says it's free because of your service. Is that sinful partiality? No, you're applying for a job, and this is you. Your background is messy. So imagine your background is messy. Um, you, you, know, you were kicked out of school when you were in high school because you vandalized the school, and then later, you, know, you never go back. You never get your, 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 your diploma or whatever. Then later, you're arrested for drug possession. Later on still, you're arrested for... Assault, and so then you apply for this job, and you're up against somebody who you're same age, but does not have the same life that you did. Finished school, went to college, never doesn't have a record. Is it impartial for that boss to give the job to the man who's, you know, doesn't have the messy past? No. 
you're on a ship, suddenly something happens to the ship. It begins to take on water, and the crewmen start shouting out, you know, pointing to the lifeboats, women and children first. Is this, you know, sinfully impartial? No, we watch Titanic, right? This is the way it should be. Not because we watch it. But I think you get the idea. It's not sinful for us to give certain preferences to people based upon certain factors because of their age, because of their service, because of their history, their gender, whatever. But it can be honorable for us to show certain respects to certain people, again, based on certain circumstances. And so James is not saying that, that we just reduce everything. Nobody has any history. Nobody has anything about them that we're not going to consider. He's not boiling everyone down just to the same base level. Um, so how do we decide what is receiving the face and what is not? Well, the key for understanding this is, is how to not show sinful preference is to not make distinctions that God doesn't make. Don't make distinctions that, that God doesn't make. So I, w- I want to flesh this out just a little bit because as I kept going through this passage over and over, and based on a conversation I had with somebody in a coffee shop the other day, is, is, is I want us to sort of work through this because I don't want us to walk away having questions that we didn't get answered in this. I don't want you to walk away and get the basic, you know, application from this, but then walk away with, what about this? And and so I kind of want to flesh this out just a little bit. So verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? You know, deciding who gets the best seat based on what kind of clothes they're wearing um, or how much money they have is not a distinction that we should make, you know, in terms of deciding who gets to sit where, how we treat them. I think we get that. But also, when we do that, we're choosing distinctions. That's his language there. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? We're choosing the distinctions that matter. So it might not be money or wealth like it is here in James chapter 2, but it might be something else that applies just the same, like being a part of the cool kids. But when we get down to verse 5, we'll ask, well, isn't God showing impartiality by choosing the poor over the rich? Does God show favoritism? So even if we can work that out in our heads, what about the doctrine of election, that God chooses those who are his people before the foundation of the earth? What about that? Is that showing partiality? So again, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the, the kingdom? So again, the question is, is God showing favoritism or partiality here? So first think of this in terms of what you know, Jesus' logic in Matthew chapter 19. So we'll deal with poor and rich first. But in Matthew 19, 24, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now we could flip that and say it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So it's not that it's impossible for a rich person to become saved. It's that it's harder Uh, So there are some who are rich that are saved. Obviously, we know that in the Bible itself. Think of Abraham. Think of David. Think of Solomon. Think of Lydia. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. Think of, um, who's another one? Um, Philemon. We just went through Philemon, or or, or Kiefer did last year. So, So rich people are saved, clearly. So wealth isn't a distinction that people have that God looks at and says, no, you sit to the side, you sit on the floor, I will not save you. No, some... Wealthy people are Christians, right? But as far as being poor and sort of reading that into Matthew 19, we could read it this way. It's easier for a poor person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the meaning is the poor are already humbled by life and more likely then to turn 
to God or trust God for what they need. They're already well-practiced in having to rely upon God or trust God. They don't have riches to sort of hold on to and not want to, to give up. They aren't treasuring earthly manna. And so it's easier for them to, to maybe value um, eternal treasures. So, so, so basically, the Bible shows us that some, some rich and not all poor are saved. So look at verse 5 again. What's helpful and what's key is the end. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So some rich love God, some don't. Those who love God are saved. Some poor love God and some don't. Those who love God are saved. And so from our vantage point, as we look, if we could look across the vast majority of or all of the kingdom of God and all that makes up of it, what we would see, the distinctions of being poor and rich don't matter. The distinction that matters is that they love God. And that's the, the distinction that, that, that's a relevant distinction that God has made. <laughs> so if you're not a believer here today, rich or poor, uh, this is what you need to hear. God's eternal promises are not given to you based upon your wealth or upon your poverty. They are not given to you based upon your own works or your own actions. You serve more than others do or you give to charity or whatever you might do. God's eternal promises are given to those who love him. And so that's the distinction that you need to hear. And those who love God, as it is here, believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in Christ as the Son of God. And that Son of God humbled himself and took upon himself a flesh like ours, but yet without sin. And it was uh, died on the cross for our sins, not his. And it was lay, raised three days later. That's the gospel that you need to believe. If you love God, this is what you will believe. This is what it means to be rich in faith or to be made rich in faith. This is what it means to be made an heir of the kingdom is you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So rich or poor, some are saved, not all are saved. At the same time, the way that James phrases this in verse 5, hasn't God chosen the poor? Poverty does appear to be a distinction that God has made regarding who he lets into the kingdom. Maybe not for everyone, but it appears to be a distinction. So how do we make sense of that? Well, if you go to the end of verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And then you look at verse 5, God does look at poverty as a distinction that he makes regarding who enters the kingdom. What are we supposed to get? What we're supposed to get here is that there are irrelevant distinctions, and there are relevant distinctions. It's kind of like American Idol versus The Voice. I thought deep and hard about this one. I don't know if you've ever watched American Idol, uh, but at American Idol, it's a singing competition, and oftentimes the person would come out and sing, and they would say, you have a good voice, but you also look like a star. Well, The Voice said, I don't like that, and so The Voice said, we're going to do this blindly. We're going to focus just on The Voice, and so we're going to turn our chairs around and listen just for the voice. It doesn't matter to us what they look like. And so the, an irrelevant distinction for the voice was what they looked like. And a relevant distinction, obviously, was you know, their, their singing voice. I don't watch none of those shows. I'll just tell you, that's what my wife told me. But um, what about God choosing the poor? What, why is that a relevant distinction to him? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Some relevant distinctions for God here are a lack of wisdom, or a lack of power, or foolishness, weakness. It's being low and despised. Again, not every powerless person, not every weak person, not you know, every person that lacks wisdom is saved. They must love God. But God chose many powerless, many weak, many foolish, many despised people to be saved. Those were relevant distinctions for him in regards to election because choosing powerless people showcases God's power. Choosing foolish people showcases God's wisdom. Choosing low and despised people showcases God's glory. God's choice is based upon his own Hidden wisdom. And so Ephesians 1.11, all things, you know, he does all things according to the counsel of his will. He does not base his choices on irrelevant considerations, but on what will glorify him most. Because at the end of it, God's glory is the chief end of all things. And so God is free to choose whomever he chooses. What we do know is that his reasons are never owing to our own goodness. That would be an irrelevant distinction because none of us are good. So God's choice is based upon His wisdom in regards to election and predestination, what most glorifies Him. So that's one of the reasons that we read in verse 5 that God chooses the poor, choosing them to showcase His glory. So there are relevant and irrelevant distinctions that we should not make about others and should make about others. Um, but God also commands us to make certain relevant decisions, right, or distinctions. For instance, you have two, pe- two poor people that come to you, and one is willing to work, and one is unwilling to work. Who do you feed? the one who's willing to work. If anyone is not willing to work, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So, a relevant distinction there is who is willing to work, how we choose elders and deacons, who we will give the blessing of marriage to. Uh, God's Word shows us what relevant distinctions should guide us in, in how we are going to, to treat people. And so, the command is do not treat people based solely upon outward appearances, when we do that, when we show partiality based upon that, we're choosing what we like. We're making distinctions ourselves or what we're comfortable with. But ultimately, we show partiality based upon what is going to serve us best. Now, if we, if we act this way, if we think this way, it's crazy. <laughs> if we think this way, we make crazy choices. So verses 6 and 7 but you have dishonored the poor man. So the poor man, you have dishonored the poor man. And not the, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So it makes no sense, right? The poor in James' audience are showing favoritism to the very ones who are oppressing them, the very ones who can drag them and are dragging them into court, the very ones who are blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. So we make distinctions about people that God doesn't hold 
as relevant, we end up showing favoritism to the distinctions that God has determined to be irrelevant. And we end up showing the world preference. This is going to be one of the things that we'll look at for the rest of our time, but just think about how ridiculous that is. For instance, if we give our money to Hollywood by buying tickets to their movies and buying all of their, all of their, their music or going to all of their sports games or you know, all of that, instead of using our money for the good of others, especially maybe even the poor, we're showing favoritism to people who certainly blaspheme the name of Christ. Two people who certainly have deemed us to be lowest on the list and will gladly throw us into jail if we oppose them. It's already happening. James is offering that same kind of logic with the wealthy man and the poor man. And so what do we do? In what ways are we showing partiality in all of this towards people who hate us? Um, so James says this is evil. So now I just kind of want to quickly run through verses 1 through 9 quickly and, and highlight um, why this showing partiality is, is evil. And the first one is that the, it's sort of contextual here, going back to the last chapter. Showing partiality makes religion worthless. So again, James 1, 26 to 27, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, so going back, the, the, the religion... The religion is the expression of our faith. Religion is, is how we live out our faith. Our religion is defiled or our religion is worthless if it you know, looks like the world, if we don't focus on those who need, like um, widows and orphans, and if we're not keeping ourselves unstained. But part of staining ourselves by the world is thinking the same way they do about who we give our preference to. And so um, showing partiality makes our religion Worthless. We may not be killing babies. We may not be racists. We may not be measuring people based upon false narratives. But if we're treating people based upon outward markers only, then our religion, he says, is stained by the world. So that's one reason partiality is evil. Second, showing partiality contradicts what it means to hold the faith in Christ. That's verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. Showing partiality is a contradiction to the gospel. Second Corinthians, uh, so just think about Christ and how Christ has come, really, in humility. Second Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So, so think about how Christ came in humility. What sense does it make if we show preference only to those who are wealthy? or only to those that we think might have power or influence. And Christ came in humility. So he came in humility, also served in humility. Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about how he died in humility. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us for the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus exchanged the wealth of heaven for the poverty of the incarnation. He exchanged majesty for, for humility, exchanged a throne for, uh, for a manger, exchanged a, a crown of glory for a, a crown of thorns. We could you know, keep going if we wanted to. But, but why? In part, to show that his kingdom is, is not of this world. It's not like this world. To show that God loves and accepts and receives what the world despises and what the world steps over and what the world hates. 
So if Jesus is the one in whom we rest, if he is the one to whom we look, then don't we think that the expression of our faith will be commensurate (laughs) to how he came, how he served, how he died? Yeah, namely loving the humble, regardless of outward appearance. So if our goal is to become like Christ, and it is, we should be also willing to love those he loves. Again, maybe we don't despise the poor. Maybe we don't sidle up to the wealthy, but what determines who we invite to our homes? So so going back to the pure religion, we talked about a month ago maybe at this time, but part of it was visiting the widows and the orphans. We We have widows in our church. And one of my applications was, how many widows have you invited into your home? It's easier to have people like us, families and kids and all of that, and that's not wrong. But, but how many widows have you invited into your home? How many widows have you gone to see and to visit? How, how high on the list? I know, I know that widows feel stepped over. And so how do we show preference to them? That's one thing. Next, showing partiality shows a diminished view of Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse 1. Why does he say that, the Lord of glory? I think it's pretty central here, but we should remember you know, his humility, but also his glory. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is exalted above all. There is no one. There is nothing on earth that could possibly compare to him. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. <laughs> say that again when you think about partiality. No one, nothing I desire on earth besides you. When you think awesome, <laughs> when we think awe, we should think Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.8 calls him the Lord of glory. Hebrews 1.3 says that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 3.4 says that Christ is now in glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 explains that, that glory belongs to him. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that he was taken up in glory. Titus 2.13 tells us that when he returns will be a day full of glory. <laughs> Glory belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the very definition of it. And so as believers, we should not be awed by passing temporary, worldly, fake glory. His glory far outshines anything that we could possibly see. Your faith in the glorious Jesus Christ is is incompatible with showing favoritism to those who have fake glory. Israel saw him in the temple. We see the same one by by faith. If we follow the mindset of James's scenario here and preferring the wealthy to fill our church, preferring the celebrities, the powerful, the influential, if our church were full of millionaires and beauty queens and, you know, what's your favorite sports team? Obviously, everyone loves the Montana Grizzlies. Um, and all the elders were, you know, Mensa men with IQs that shot through the roof. None of that would give anything additional to the glory of Christ. In fact, it might diminish it from our vantage point, in our view. The presence of Christ's glory, all earthly achievements are nothing. To show partiality to people based upon external fading appearances is to diminish our view of Christ. That's evil. That's an evil thought. Only he deserves that. Next, showing partiality reveals sort of what we've already talked about, but an evil mind. We want powerful and wealthy and influential people to take notice of us. Why? Because we want their glory. We've deemed something about them that we want. And so we sidle up to them because we've lost sight of the Lord's glory. So we show preferential treatment to those who have that 
fake glory. Think about that being worked out in us. Probably not even consciously. We favor or invite over or sidle up to those that, that have what we want and step over those who might work against that or diminish what we want. I don't know that we could think of another word than evil to describe thoughts like that. The next one, showing partiality diminishes what God thinks about his people. Now, in this passage, particularly the poor, but this is all of his people. And so it, it, it cheapens favoritism. It undermines. It distorts. It perverts what God thinks about his people. Look, look at how he describes them in, 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 in verse 4, 5, and 6. Has not God chosen? <laughs> That's the first descriptor. God has chosen them. They are the object of sovereign grace, of, of sovereign love. So he's made them his people, and he their God. He's, next, he, he, he has not God chosen his people to be rich in faith? What is earthly poverty compared to heavenly riches? What is income or any other irrelevant distinction compared to every blessing in the heavenly places, every treasure in the heavenly places with every, which Ephesians 1.3 tells us that we all have, rich, poor, whoever. If we're Christians, we have all the wealth, and then chosen them to be heirs of the kingdom. So if we look at people and we think they're lacking in something, especially even believers, especially believers, only believers, but we think they're lacking in something or we think that they're inconsequential to us and somehow we despise them or we think that they're unimportant to us, then we're not seeing them from God's perspective who looks upon his people and says, I chose them. They're rich in faith and they're heirs of the kingdom. And that's how we should view believers, rich or poor. And lastly, showing partiality diminishes how we think about the rich. And so in verse 8, go quickly, if you, you know, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So love your neighbor as yourself. The first implication of this is don't discriminate against those you know, who, who we might be you know, determined to be lowly or unworthy of our time or money or attention or whatever. I think we've covered that, but loving your neighbor also means loving the rich. It means loving all of your neighbors, even your enemies, Luke 10, 25 to 37. So if we show partiality towards, you know, wealthy people, then we reduce them to just, like, tickets. But we've reduced them, really, to just doors. We've diminished our view of the rich people, and we're viewing them just as a, maybe a way to get something that they have, when, in reality, if this is a rich man who comes into the church, and, this, and he's not a Christian, in reality, we're not just trying to get something from him, we're withholding what he needs. We have, if he's not a Christian, what he needs. We are rich in faith. We are to be trying to share with him what he's lacking in, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And, and so... So, showing favoritism changes everything. It, 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 it diminishes how we view Christ. It diminishes how we view poor people. It diminishes how we view rich people. It heightens how we view ourselves. And so, the application to all of this, and there are some that we've already talked about, but it's to look to Christ. It's to look to Christ. If we want the pure religion and not the worthless religion, we, we look to Jesus Christ. We follow Him and so like him, we show no partiality, seeking to be like him in thought, word, and deed. Also focusing on Christ is how we hold a high view of Christ, not a diminished one. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you know, if we behold him, 
will be transferred from one degree of glory to another. A, a heightened view of Jesus Christ is what we need, and so we need to be looking at Jesus Christ. And from that, if we have a heightened view of Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, we'll have a lower view of ourselves, right? But then that will raise our view of others, whether they're rich or they're poor. And so Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin to see others as ones we can serve, not take from, but add to and to serve them. And focusing on Christ leads us to realize that we are to share Him with all others. So, so think about this, this passage this week and think about how maybe you show favoritism, whether it's with money or time or who you sidle up to. And maybe it'll show itself in who you don't spend time with. Think about that this week and, and then look to Christ. That's your answer. It's not just rotely applying and doing things that I say. It's, it's going to his word. It's looking at Christ. It's following him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for um, that you've given us a word that reminds us and oftentimes in a very difficult way of where we fall short, where we sin as your people. That we are not always viewing you as the, as the only one. Not always viewing those who are around us as, as nothing we desire. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us and that you'd burden our hearts, that you would reveal hurtful ways in us, and that you would enable us by the power of the Spirit, by our faith in you, by grace, to kill this sin. For, for the good of ourselves, for, for the good of the community that we live in, for the good of the world outside of us, and ultimately for your glory, that we might be impartial as you are impartial. And for anyone here this morning who does not know you, and there are, there are people in this room who do not know you, children, adults, visitors, members. There are some here who do not know you truly. And so, Father, we would ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would condescend and you would speak an effectual call to them, that you would speak to their hearts, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, that you would draw them to yourselves, that you'd give them eyes to see the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ, to give them ears to hear the beautiful message of the gospel itself. Let it ring sweetly in their ears. That you'd give them a heart to feel the dread of their place, their dread of where they stand outside of your son. But Father, also today, Father, let them feel the hope that is found in Jesus Christ for the very first time. We pray, Father, that you would do this because we cannot. So Father, we love you. We thank you for all these things. We pray for all the things mentioned. In Christ's name, amen.